This message first aired on the radio on November 17, 2003. As I've learned to enjoy the Bible, I'm a little surprised that there are very few that do. And so that's what we try to do, is just sort of enjoy the Bible right out in front of you, right out in front of your ears, as we might say. Now, that in mind, we've been going through the book of Romans, and we intend to spend seven weeks going through the book of Romans in a systematic, verse-by-verse way, or we might even say section-by-section way. And in the process of doing that, we've come to Romans chapter 2 and verse 17 and following. And we're going to take that subject up today, and we're going to take a little bit of this subject up also tomorrow. And it's good for us to see where the book is headed and what the Apostle is doing or what God is doing through the writing of the Apostle here, and to remind ourselves that there's something in process. I really urge you to go back and catch the first four messages in this series, if you haven't, because we do believe that there's great value to looking at this book as a whole and take the 40 minutes or hour that it takes to read the book to yourself, out loud, all at one sitting. But in the course of looking at this epistle, especially the book of Romans, is a doctrinal treatise. It is a systematic approach by the apostle, particularly a beginning in the midst of, or toward the end of the first chapter, we'd say maybe beginning at one of our theme verses here, at BibleStudy.net, beginning the 16th verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And when we see this section, a doctrinal section, beginning about there, we'll see the apostle take it up all the way through the 8th chapter. Then he'll take about three chapters to show us a mystery, which is the mystery of the partial and temporary blindness of the nation of Israel. Then he'll take the greater portion of four chapters to exhort Christians on how they ought to conduct themselves one with another in the church and individually together and so forth. And then he'll disclose a little teaser of the mystery concerning the church, which is his body, which at the time of the writing of the epistle is not fully formed. It's in development. Both the church, which is his body, is not fully formed. Of course, neither is the doctrine of the church, which is his body, fully formed. So maybe it helps us a little bit to gather a little background of when and how we think the book of Romans was written. I think there's a pretty good consensus about the time of the book of Romans, when it's written. A reasonable consensus suggests that it was written around 58 AD. And when I say consensus, who am I talking about? I don't know guys that study the Bible and have over a period of time. But it's a particularly auspicious occasion, and it's a time, it's probably written at a time when the apostle had a little time in one place. He didn't spend a lot of time in one place very often in his ministry. But when he came to Corinth, after he passed through Athens, and we read about this in the book of Acts, and if you have your Bible, you can turn to it there, that the apostle was in Athens, And he spoke to them at Mars Hill, and they took him in front of the Athenian council to speak. He was asked to speak at the Athenian council, in front of the Athenian council, which gathered at the Areopagus and at Mars Hill. And I'll just read it to you as uh, he prepared to come to Corinth. Let's just take a little bit of time and read some of the scriptures that will position Paul for the writing of the book of Romans. 
We read in Acts 17, verse 15, And then they conducted Paul, brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. And that happens. That's kind of a normal Christian feeling. And while Paul waited, he stirred up. Verse 17, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. So he began a, a public discourse in, amongst the Jews, which was his practice. After all, the apostle knew that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first. And so his practice would be to go to the synagogue first, begin to take it to the Jews until uh, they would listen to him. And when they no longer would listen to him, he would take those who did listen and he'd separate them. And then he would begin to educate and teach and preach to the Gentiles. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this babbler say? Or, uh, what does this babbler want? And this word for babbler, he's called a seed picker, or a seed speaker. And this has to do, of this was a, ter a term of derogation that has to do with a kind of person who goes around and picks up a little information here, a little information there. And, of course, it's contrasting what these people think about themselves, because the Stoics and Epicureans think themselves to be great scholars. Oh, great scholars. Maybe they smoke pipes. They rub their head in knowing ways. They roll their eyes, other gestures of studied great men. And uh, a Stoic, of course, a Stoic is a guy who believes that in self-denial there is a form of human perfection. And an Epicurean believes that in self-indulgence there's a form of human perfection. Of course, they're both totally wrong. And then I suppose they had those compromisers who balanced a little Stoicism and Epicureanism and li lived what they called a balanced life. But they said, what will this seed picker say? And others are, what does this seed picker want? And others said, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods. He seems to be proclaiming some kind of foreign god. Because he preached unto them... Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, Acts 17. And they took him and they brought him unto the Areopagus, saying, May we know what is this new teaching whereof thou speakest? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, and we would know where, uh, therefore what these things <clears throat> mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but to tell or to hear some new thing. That's how we know that they're university professors, because look how they live. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Now let me just say that the Areopagus is where the Athenian assembly met. This is the leaders of the city. And they met there. That's how it, where the, the gate of the city is, the elders in the gate, as it were. And so Paul said, I perceive that you're too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. And now he takes them on in their ignorance. He says, this God you're ignorant about, so that you call him an unknown God, this is the one, I'm going to tell you about the God you don't know. God that made the world and all things therein, 
seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed something, seeing he gives to all life breath and all things. Now, let me just say that a heathen thought is that God needs something. God is not one who needs anything. I'm so tired of hearing preachers tell me what God needs this and God needs that, and God needs nothing. And if he did, he, he told us. If he did need some, he wouldn't ask us for it or tell us about it. So, And he has made one blood of all nations of men. Now, there, I want to tell you that the Scripture teaches very specifically, and you uh, racialists and those of you that are listening to the false teaching of the modern-day Armstrongs and British Israelites, I want you to notice that here it says every nation is made one blood. God has made of one blood all the nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. So those of you who don't think that the nations are the nations, but somehow you think that the nations are, what, some lost tribes of Israel or whatever you think, I have no idea. They're all one blood, and they dwell on the whole face of the earth, and has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. In fact, we learn in the Old Testament that God organized the nations around the number of the children of Israel. That they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And so now you see, and going, coming back to the context of Romans, of course, which is what we want to do. We don't want to get lost here in Acts 17, even though it's extremely profitable, and even though we could profitably just drill down here and enjoy it. We want to see that the apostle here is backgrounding us of how one preaches to the Gentiles who are ignorant of the law of God and yet not ignorant of his Godhead and his deity, as we've studied in Romans 2. And then it says, For as much as we are his offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like gold, silver, or stone, graven by art or man's device. And here he teaches, of course, that the works of men's hands do not artifice the person of God. And then he says, The times of this ignorance God winked at. And here's background for Romans. You see, you can see how this is, how the mind of the apostle is backgrounded here and poised to write the book of Romans. Because he says, because he has a point, the times of this ignorance, verse 30, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to change their minds or repent. And that, if you understand it, corresponds exactly with the portion that we've just concluded in Romans chapter 2, where we dealt with the man who was the theoretical Gentile. When the apostle said, do you think that you're going to escape his judgment? Do you think that you can fail to repent or change your mind? And don't you realize that God hasn't brought his judgment to you because this is a characteristic of his goodness? This is a characteristic of his forbearance? and that it is intended to bring you to what? A change of mind or repent. So here it, it says God used to wink, close one eye, to the ignorance of men. Of course, the other eye he had, the pupil of his eye, he had on Israel. But one eye he closed, that is, he closed his eyes to the Gentile, his eye to the Gentile. 
and their ignorance he winked at, but now, after the resurrection, ascension, and glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, he commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. Wherefore he has given assurance unto all men, in that he raised him out from the dead. Now, there it is. Uh, the two-edged sword, he commands all men everywhere to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because there is a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the world. Well, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, we'll hear this matter again, but they didn't. So Paul departed from them, howbeit some clave to him. One fella, Dionysus, one of the Areopagites, one of the guys of the council stayed with Paul, Dionysius, and a woman named Demaris, and others with them. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth, and he's going to stay there a year and 18 months, and that's where we think he wrote the book of Romans. So we're going to come back now to Romans, the end of chapter 2, and talk about not the Gentiles, who we have talked about, and there's your context, but we're going to talk about the Jews in just a minute if you'll stay with us and listen to this brief announcement and let me catch my breath. So we're back now to Romans, the end of the second chapter, Romans 2.17. We've turned from the theoretical case of the Gentile, who sins without the law, and he'll perish without the law, who by nature do the things that are in the law, by nature they do some right things, showing that the law is written on their hearts. Now we turn to the case of the Jew. We turn to the case of the Jew. Behold, verse 17 says, Behold, thou art called a Jew. Or, but if you are a Jew, that's another way of putting it. But let's just say, and these are two cases, there are two cases of prosecution. Well, the Gentile gets prosecuted without the law, but he has the law written on his heart, and he knows he's wrong, and so he has to repent. The Jew is prosecuted by the law. And so he has he's prosecuted a different way, but to the same end. Now, it's interesting that the book of Romans writes, the theory, uh, that Paul writes in to the Romans, the theoretical case of the Jew, because while he writes it to the Romans, there aren't any Jews in Rome at the time that they received the letter. And we find that from Acts 18. You look at Acts 18, verse 1, where it said, After these things Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth, and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, also known as Prisca. So we have Aquila and Priscilla, and they were lately come to Corinth from Italy. Now, very likely, where it says they were come from Italy, they came from Rome. Very likely. Because they were run out of Rome at some time. So, whether it's 52 A.D. or 54 A.D., I don't really care to argue about those kind of things. Sometimes the time frames are specifically very important. But they were run out of Rome, and it would be an ordinary kind of a thing for somebody who was used to Roman life to get into Corinth because uh, it is, after all, a large city. It is a, a political capital. It's not quite Rome, but it's still a city of some, uh, what should we say, public magnitude and probably good market for tents there, which is what Quilla and Priscilla uh, did. But it tells us that they were lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, Roman emperor, 
excuse me, the Roman ruler, Claudius, had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. So essentially they were kicked out of Rome, and the Jews were kicked out of Rome by Claudius. Now why were they kicked out of Rome? Well, frankly, because these fellows that rejected the Lord Jesus Christ were a lot of trouble. They were just a lot of trouble, and they were always trying to generate some kind of political dissent. They weren't happy being under Rome, and you might say, well, I can see where you didn't like it, where it wasn't pleasant, but there's no, there's no room for discontent under God, and God had them there anyway. They got ran out, and they were run out by force, by decree. So, being run out by decree, there aren't any Romans illegally left in legally left in Rome. And this probably because of broad rebellions and insurrections fomented by the Jews in Rome, which they were wont to do, not only this late date, but they were wont to do that, even at the time when the Lord Jesus Christ had his ministry and was crucified. So it's interesting that now the theoretical case is made to the Romans. It's made in this letter, but it's on the mind of the apostle. You can see it here, the context of it. Behold, you're called a Jew, and you rest in the law, and you make your boast of God. Now, here he's going to go through ten qualities, or ten, I might just say, ten premises that Jews believe about themselves. Ten things. So behold, thou art called a Jew, rest in the law, make your boast of God. Verse 18, knowest his will, and approveth the things that are more excellent. That Another way of putting that is you distinguish the things that are different, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind. All right, guide of the blind, a light to them which are in darkness. So those who are unable to see, you see in their behalf. Those who are dark, you light them up. An instructor of the foolish, those who are foolish, you become a wise person then an instructor of foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Or you have an outline of knowledge. So here are ten things that the Jew, what we say, boasts in. One, he depends upon the law for his justification. This is one thing a Jew does too. He glories in God as if God is his God and no one else's. Three, he knows the will of God. Four, he is able to distinguish things that are different, been able to have detailed knowledge. Five, he's instructed out of the law. Six, he's confident as, his, as a guide to the blind. Seven, he's a light to them in darkness. Eight, he's an instructor of the foolish. Nine, he's a teacher of the little ones, or babes, therefore he himself must be mature. And ten, he has an outline of knowledge and the truth of the law. Now, thou, therefore, which teaches another. Here's the apostle's argument to the Jew. You who teach another not to steal, thou, therefore, which teach another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou preachest a man should not steal. Do you steal? He starts with that. It's interesting that he starts with that. He starts with that commandment. He says, now you're teaching others. And he goes over to the second side of the Decalogue. He goes over to the second tablet, talks about how they deal with it. He says, you're teaching others, but do you steal? Now, when you say that a man should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And now he moves over to the first side of the Decalogue, and he says, 
you that abhor idols, do you commit sacrilege? Do you rob temples? Of course, the answer to all these things is yes. You that teach not to steal, do you steal? Well, yes. Do you that teach not uh, to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Yes. Does the Jew do these things? Yes, he does. The Jew brings to us the commandments. The commandments came, the law came to Israel. There's no question the law came to Israel. And by the way, there's no question it did not come to the Gentiles. That's one thing Romans teaches very clearly. I know we have a controversy about the Ten Commandments today. It's not really controversial. I mean, they are the Ten Commandments. What's controversial about that? Nobody argues. Somebody may argue how to number them. Somebody might argue how to number them, but they only argue how to number them out of their own purposes. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church renumbered the commandments so they could get rid of the second one. I mean, that's that's not hard to figure out, and it's not hard to figure out why. So they say, well, let's take this Tenth Commandment, turn it into two, two, nine and ten, move everything up one, and we'll get rid of the second one, and then we can sell idols. Make some money. After all, got to make, make some money. Well, that's not the point here. The point is the Ten Commandments are the Ten Commandments. Nobody keeps them. That's a cinch. It's a shame that we're not even free to display them. How are we going to learn what they are if we can't display them? Anyway, the answer to all these questions, do you do that? Yes, they do. Thou that makes thy boast of the law. Through breaking the law, don't you dishonor God? And, of course, the answer is yes. And that's the thing. You boast of the law, whether it's the Ten Commandments or the 613. Regardless of how many you say they are, you're breaking them. And when you break them, don't you bring dishonor to God? Now, this is a different way of convicting the Jew. It is not that the Gentile and the Jew are more or less sinners. It is just simply that there are different ways to convict the two. And uh, But they both end up convicted. They both end up liable for their sins. They both end up in the same spot, convicted sinners needing a Savior. One, you convict without the law by talking to him about what he knows in his heart to be true. The other one, you convict using the law by what he knows out of the law to be true. What difference does it make? The only difference it makes is whether you bring the person to conviction or not. But, of course, all are brought to conviction this way. That's why we're going to find out later this surprising point. All have sinned. All have sin. I have my grandchildren. My grandchildren are learning a verse. My grandma, my wife, is teaching my grandchildren, some other children, scripture verses about according to the alphabet. She's teaching them the alphabet. She's teaching them the months of the year. She's teaching them some children. She's teaching them various things. And one of the things she does is she has them memorize certain scriptures that correspond to the alphabet. And I listen to my little, my little three-year-old all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, she'll quote Romans 3, 23. She said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But repeating that verse does not teach her that she's a sinner. She doesn't realize from that that she's a sinner. It's not how she's convicted. She could quote that verse and tell it to her brother, and her brother quote it back to her, which they do, all the time. But they're they're not convicted in knowing that. That's a summary. The way they're convicted is that they know in their hearts when they do wrong. And if they're taught the law, we can teach them out of the law. Well, doesn't the Bible say, honor your father and your mother, and doesn't that mean that you're supposed to obey them? Yes, it does. Yes, that's what it means. And didn't you disobey mama? Yes, I did. Now that's conviction, you see, as they are persuaded of their own sinfulness. Now, 
conviction is very important, but it doesn't save you. In fact, it condemns you. That's what condemnation is. It's self. It's judgment, and and uh, God will bring that judgment upon you if you don't judge yourself as a sinner. Now, even judging yourself as a sinner doesn't save you. You now merely become guilty. And now here's what the apostle's doing. He's prosecuting the Jew according to the law that the Jew knows. So it's a fair prosecution. You that boast of the law, don't you dishonor God by breaking the law? And now he quotes the scripture. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. And that's a fact. I mean, it's a fact that the name of God was blasphemed by the way Israel conducted itself. We just finished an overview of the dispensation of the law, wherein we saw in all four quarters, from the opening kick to the final gun, that Israel dishonored God throughout, and even the the Gentiles, as fans watching, God was dishonored by watching the performance of Israel. It was as if Israel gave up 561 yards to a rival football team. And when they left the field, all the fans were mad at the coaches. Very similar thing. Israel uh, dishonored God by their performance on the field in front of the Gentiles. They were supposed to bring the truth of God to the Gentiles, and instead they made God to be ashamed and blasphemed God before the Gentiles, as Ezekiel told them. As Ezekiel told them that, the prophet Ezekiel, who who was with them at the time they were in their worst of days. So now the apostle now gives conclusions about that, and he's going to carry on a little bit convicting his countrymen, the Jews, because he says, for circumcision, verse 25, and we have a little change of thought here, he says, for circumcision verily profits if you keep the law. Remember, he said that lack of circumcision didn't hurt any it didn't hurt a Gentile if he kept the law. and therefore, But circumcision profits if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision becomes just like what? Uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keeps the righteousness of the law, which is what? Yeah, now this is the question. If the uncircumcision keeps the righteousness of the law, well, what's the righteousness of the law? Well, the righteousness of God is revealed by grace through faith. Even the law showed that. Shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge you, who by the letter and circumcision transgresses the law? In other words, you Jew, when you find out that that law is the very thing that convicts you, what do you have to stand on in the face of the one who finds the righteousness of God without law? In other words, the righteousness that is in the law, if someone found it without law, and you only find your unrighteousness in the law, what good is the law and what good is your circumcision? And the answer is that it's none. Now we have the concluding statement, for he's not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, circumcision that of the heart in spirit and not letter, 
whose praise is not of men, but of God. And you think this is news? Do you think this is news? Maybe you think, well, this is all brand new stuff to the Jews at this time. When we come back, I'm going to show you why that's not true. So we're looking here at Romans 2 right at the end, and we're going to transition to Romans 3. But it's not news, or it ought not, let me just say it ought not to be news to a Jew that he is a Jew, or a true Jew, actually, is what we might, the way we might look at this, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Now, there is no Jew who shouldn't understand the need for an inward transformation. That is to say, let me put it more blatant or more clear. More clearly spoken, it's this. There's not a Jew alive ever at the time of the writing of the Apostle, really even during the time of the Lord's ministry, who shouldn't realize that you must be born again. This is not the gospel to the Gentiles. This is not the good news to the Gentiles. This is the gospel of God, which was known all throughout time. And the gospel of Christ was known throughout time. The gospel of Christ is not a hidden mystery. We'll find out what the hidden mystery is. But remember, the gospel of God is not hidden except to those who are perishing. And it's never been hidden except to those who are perishing. It is the mystery of the church which his body is hidden. It is the mystery of Israel's partial and temporary blindness that is hidden. It is the mystery of the first resurrection, the rapture of the church, which is hidden. These are mysteries. These are things hidden that are revealed in the in the uh, through the ministry of the apostle Paul and these things are going to be revealed through the seven epistles that we so uh, the nine epistles that we call uh, to the seven churches that we call the seven church epistles beginning here with Romans but the need for the new birth is elementary teaching and how do we know that we can go look at where it's disclosed in John chapter 3 there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus ruler of the Jews or a member of the Sanhedrin this guy was a member of the great Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, one of 71 guys. And not the high priest, but certainly eminent, eminent man. And very wealthy man, along with Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, and along with Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the 71-man Sanhedrin. This is a big shot. This is a knowledgeable guy. In fact, we're going to find out what kind of a knowledgeable guy he is in this passage, John 3, verse 2? The same came to Jesus by night. Well, so he wouldn't be seen. And he said unto him, Rabbi, we, that is the whole Sanhedrin, know that thou art a teacher come from God. We know that you're come from God to us as a teacher. That's obvious. And when did that first become obvious? That first became obvious when the Lord Jesus Christ was 12 years old and went about his father's business. That's when it became obvious. It was more eminently obvious. And when he began his public ministry, no one could deny he was a teacher come from God. For no man can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. And that, by the way, was the purpose of miracles, to signify God's messenger. It's not needed today. 
God's messenger needed to be signified in days past so that we would know what is God's message. Now that we know what God's message is, the messenger can be signified by the message. In other words, we can no lo- we no longer have to judge the message by the messenger. We can judge the messenger by the message because we got it. It's here. Well, I'll talk more on that, especially when we get into the First Corinthians, which I'm looking forward to, and we'll put to rest some of this crazy chasing after miracles. And my offer for a thousand bucks for a verifiable miracle, safest thousand dollars I have in my in my possession stands but here the lord jesus christ did miracles and nobody could deny that he was a teacher come from god because of them jesus answered and said unto him now here's he gets very clear with nicodemus of course the lord's very blunt very direct and by the way he's not solicited on the basis of nicodemus sucking up a bit here so nicodemus kissing up a little bit but jesus is unimpressed and by the way the lord is unimpressed when you kiss up He's interested in your obedience, in your obedience. Two sons. One said he wouldn't to his father and did. The other one kissed up, said he would and didn't. Which one did the will of his father? Well, the one that said, I won't, but did. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That was his first statement. He said, listen, except you be born from above, You cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, maybe you think, like maybe most Christians would think, or most people would think, that Jesus is giving this guy elevated instruction. Maybe you think he's here teaching Nicodemus deep truth. But it's not what he says he's doing. So let's see what he says he's doing. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus being old. Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? As Jesus said, born from above or born again. You could look at it either way. Nicodemus decided to look at it uh, born again. But actually, it's from above, anothen. Jesus answered, verily, verily. Now, every time he says truly, truly, that's to get the attention of the hearer. Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, he's telling Nicodemus a couple different things here, and we won't go into all what he's telling him, but he's giving him basic teaching, and he's teaching him, you've got to see the kingdom of God, you've got to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be born out of water and spirit, you've got to be born from above. Of course, John's baptism, great controversy, as these guys in the Sanhedrin would not hit the water. They just wouldn't do it. And there are many today that won't. There are many Christians today that will not, that absolutely willfully refuse to get baptized. I don't say you're not my brother, but I do say, brother, I don't trust you. I'm telling you that. You won't get baptized. I don't trust you. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit, Jesus says to him. Now he says, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. Now let's just skip ahead to a couple of verses. Nicodemus says in verse 9, How can these things be? How can this be? And here's what Jesus says to him in verse 10, and this is my main point. Jesus answered and said unto him, Are you a teacher in Israel, and you don't know this? Now he doesn't say a teacher. That's the way the Bible reads here, the King James Version reads. A more accurate reading is this. Aren't you the famous teacher of Israel? 
aren't you the the teacher? Aren't you ranked high? Aren't you in the top ten in the coaches poll? I mean, you're you're Nicodemus. You're the teacher in Israel, and you don't know this, or you haven't even you could even put it this way: you haven't even learned the, these things. So, now he says his third verily, verily to him. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that what we know, testify that we have seen, and you have not received our witness. Now, here's what the Lord Jesus Christ said to Nicodemus. You're a teacher in Israel. Of course, this corresponds to here, Romans chapter 2, the end, that to the theoretical Jew who said, you're, you're confident, you're a guide to the blind, you're a light to them which are in darkness, you're an instructor of foolish, a teacher of babes, you got the outline of knowledge, the truth of the law, you teach another, you're teaching others, your role is to do so, and you don't know that a Jew is not one who is a Jew outwardly, but who's one inwardly, whose circumcision is of the heart? You don't know that? Now, of course, any Jew should know that, because after all, I mean, who's circumcised? Well, there were, there were those who, there are those teachers in Israel who got so crazy in their thinking that they would thank God every day they weren't a woman. But uh, women aren't circumcised. And I, I don't even want to talk about the heathen, pagan African tribes that practice what they call female circumcision but circumcision was not for women circumcision was for men i trust i don't need to go into details but how can you be a teacher in israel and not realize that the circumcision that matters is the one of the heart is the inward one and not the outward one that's what the book of romans te- and by the way i know i have at least one jewish listener do you think that that's what really matters or do you think that it's the way it, that it really is, that that is an outward symbol of an inward truth? Such that, uh, you know, Messiah was cut off and had nothing. That's what the prophecy says. And here, the circumcision in the flesh, that doesn't justify a man. It is the circumcision of the heart which makes you a true Jew. That is one of God's chosen people. And that's what the Lord Jesus told the teacher in Israel. And that's what the Apostle Paul is telling the Jew who makes his boast in the law. Now we're going to talk about more of the content of the law and what it really teaches you. But he is a Jew, Romans 2, 29, that is one inwardly. Inwardly, on the inside, not on the outside, on the inside. Whose circumcision is of the heart. In the spirit and not in the letter. Oh, we do have human spirit. And spiritually we're all equal before God. Guilty in need of a Savior. Whose praise, by the way, is not of men, but of God. And whose applause are you looking for? And now he strikes, if I may say cogently and a bit of a pun, at the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is this. Are you inwardly for God? Are you inwardly a Jew? That is, are you inwardly one of God's own? And if you are, 
I know if I'll know if you are. Everyone will find out if you are eventually because you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to now commend to you, Nicodemus. Because it was a little embarrassing. He came to Jesus by night. It was a private thing. But here's a guy that was maybe number one on the AP poll and number two or three in the coaches poll. In the BCS standings among teachers in Israel, he I mean he probably made the playoff. I mean he made a major bowl for sure. Nicodemus, at least, having heard from the Lord this dressing down, as Romans 2 dresses down the Jew, the one that teaches, don't you do these things? That doesn't make you a hypocrite. It makes you a sinner. At least Nicodemus understood that he needed a Savior, and he understood who the Savior was, after all. Nicodemus, cowardly by night coming to the Lord, bravely, with Joseph of Arimathea, buried the Lord Jesus Christ in the tomb. And I'm sure lost the praise of men and found the praise of God in so doing. Well, this is what we have. These are the two arguments. What we've got now, we've got the heathen are sinners, the Jews are sinners. We're going to come to Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, we'll come to that conclusion, but we're going to come to it in a painful and painstaking way so that we won't forget it. And won't you stay with us for that little trip down analytic lane so that we can all come to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the same. Let me leave you with this wonderful hymn. 